This episode is brought to you by Salt and Strings Butchery in Southern Illinois. Order your custom beef today by visiting saltandstrings.com or use the link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Barbell Logic, the premier online coaching service for barbell strength training. Get your first month free by signing up at barbelllogic.com slash hardmen or use the link in the show notes. Well, welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. Of course, I am your host, Eric Kahn. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be having a conversation with Mr. Nate Fisher. Nate is one of the founders of New Founding. New Founding, if you go to their website at newfounding.com, is designed, it says, to build the America you want to live in. So a bunch of guys basically doing a lot of the work that we're talking about at the King's Hall with Rebuilding Christendom. And they're involved in a number of ventures, including starting businesses. They're the men behind Return, uh, which we talk about in the episode. Something definitely worth checking out. That's return.life if you're online. And it's sort of a tech website. Got some great articles there. They're also behind American Reformer. Um, so definitely would encourage you to check that as well uh, at AmericanReformer.org. G. And so anyway, we're going to jump into this episode right away uh, to talk with Nate about what they're doing. We also have some interesting conversation about what it means, who's being successful uh, since 2020, particularly people will find that are disruptors. So we talked to Nate about what is a disruptor. We'll talk about the importance of media, why media is important for casting vision, uh, which is often a starting point for movements. So we're going to talk about this and much more with Nate Fisher, again, of New Founding. Well, welcome to the podcast. I am your host today, Eric Kahn, and I'm joined today by Nate Fisher, who is the co-founder and CEO of New Founding. Nate, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Eric. Awesome. Well, we're, we're super excited to hear about what you guys are doing. Uh, one of the things that we've talked a lot about on the King's Hall podcast is really this idea of actually having a, a positive vision and, and then building the new Christendom. But we know it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of businesses, a lot of infrastructure. So give me just kind of the lay of the land. What are you guys doing with new founding and how does it maybe play into some of those ideals? Sure. So uh, it directly ties into uh, actually realizing, I, I would say it directly ties into to several things, both figuring out what positive vision we should aim for and then bringing together the people to realize that. And that's... Uh, Obviously, the former needs to uh, needs to happen if we're going to do the latter. At the same time, I think a lot of people realize that uh, this is a time when we need to move past thought pieces and move toward action. And I, you can't, in many ways, the process of creating is something that uh, where vision is worked out as you go. So our uh, our goal is really to do both of those. And in many ways, the uh, the different parts of what we do at New Founding, the media side and the uh, that a lot of the business sides complement each other as we as we work to achieve that. Yeah, that's awesome. So I guess break down for me, just new founding. What do you guys do? Um, what are some of the services uh, that you provide and what are you trying to accomplish? Sure. So at a high level, new founding is uh, is both a group of people. It, we're, we're building essentially a community or a network of people who are all working toward a shared vision across a number of organizations and then specifically, there's a, a set of organizations, really core organizations that we founded. And uh, so I'll start with what we founded, which is uh, it, it includes media, 
it includes technology, it includes some of what would uh, would fall into the finance category. Uh, and really, the way of the way we the way to think about that is uh, the, the media in many ways serves as that flag. We have two flagship publications. We have a line, which is uh, goes to about three hundred fifty thousand people. It's a newsletter that uh, starts with started with the motto, uh, "Don't buy from people who hate you. Stop buying from people who hate you." <laughs> yes. uh, but really, attempted to do more than that. It would it would point out a positive alternative in a particular category. Uh, the example I like to give is uh, in June of twenty twenty one. I think. Uh, Dunkin' Donuts changes its logo on uh, Twitter to uh, uh, rainbow colors. Krispy Kreme doesn't. Very simple. Uh, clearly conscious decisions by both of those. Choose the better alternative. And we'll, we'll make little positive steps you can take in your day-to-day life to the point of highlighting lots of smaller businesses that all uh, – either they just – they, they steer clear of a lot of the uh, the woke trends sweeping the country, or they positively embrace a uh, clear uh, message aligned with the right. And, and we're happy to to move people toward all of those. All of those are companies that don't hate you, or they don't at least they don't signal that they hate you publicly. Uh, so that's that's a line. And really, the goal is very is broad, positive lifestyle steps. Uh, return is the other side of that, and return is uh, in many ways the flagship publication of. Uh, in some ways, you can see it as a flagship publication of the movement. The goal is to think about, as we experience digital transformation, what should our vision of life be in the digital age? Uh, it, it's not something that a lot of people, I think, on the right have spent a lot of time thinking about. In many ways, conservatism uh, has embraced an identity that is reduced to uh, trying to preserve the good things of the past, trying to preserve norms. There are good things of the past. The problem is that that's when when you reduce your your movement to that, you're guaranteed to lose. Uh, and you're guaranteed to lose not just because progressives have more power than we do, but because technological change itself by very nature is corrosive to uh, old processes, old norms. When technology changes, uh, things will change. And if, if we don't have a strong positive vision of what that change should look like, uh, the changes can be defined by those who do, and we're going to we're going to see a, a loss of the things that we we cling to. So, returns goal is is really an embrace of technology. This is also a fundamentally American idea. Americans have always, uh, in, in our heritage, we've always embraced technological change. I mean, Tocqueville talked about that uh, as a defining feature of America in the early 19th century. And so, at return, our goal is uh, is, is really aimed at. Uh, you could say the creator class, the builder class, a lot of uh, dissident Silicon Valley types, a lot of people who are professionals, uh, engineers, uh, people in that world who are who are looking for the question of what should we, how do you live well in the digital age and what should we build to uh, realize that vision of life? And so uh, uh, in many ways, you can think of the picture that return paints as defining a vision of, of new founding. And ultimately, it, it must be anchored to a Christian understanding. I can get back to this uh, later. But fundamentally, uh, one of the things that I think people realize in the digital age is neutrality is is impossible. Uh, there was It was at least mm-hmm. easier to maintain a pretense of neutrality uh, in a lot of the 20th century uh, with a lot, of, uh, a lot of the networks. Telephone doesn't necessarily have sort of an obvious... Uh, values laid in nature. But when most of your technology is uh, curating, it's bots that essentially uh, guide you in a particular direction. Uh, You type something in Google and there's a ranked list of results. There must be a value system that determines what is number one and what is number two. And uh, I think as as we 
a, a, a right that has embraced neutrality in many ways, liberal neutrality as a highest good, uh, needs to rethink what uh, what should we actually aim for when uh, when that's not a sufficient answer. So uh, that that's a long answer about return, but it's a significant uh, focus of the broader new founding project. Then uh, alongside that, we have uh, what we're calling new founding ventures, and new founding ventures is. Uh, it, it's about bringing people together and organizing them around those ventures. Uh, we're working on, uh, and we'll be rolling out soon, uh, something probably like an accelerator program where uh, smaller businesses can partner with us and we'll really help them uh, guide them in this and plug them in and, and bring together founders all the way up to what could look like a venture studio where we bring together and connect co-founders around new companies. Uh, finally, uh, we have a, a, a platform where we're building a forum uh, we'll be launching that soon. Uh, and uh, we have a talent placement program where we can connect uh, aligned people with aligned businesses. In many cases, neither very public about their viewpoint. Uh, I think a central thesis of new founding, and this goes back to the media, is by planting that flag and by being public uh, with what is a clearly dissident viewpoint in a world where a lot of people can't afford to, uh, to take that risk. Uh, we're able to establish a lot of relationships with, uh, with people and with founders, with companies. Uh, that uh, increasingly want to uh, adjust their relationships in that direction uh, aren't necessarily in a position to do that yet. And we can broker uh, broker moves like uh, helping someone leave Google and move to a uh, startup that's run by an aligned founder that may not be super public. So uh, we do talent. So essentially think of it as uh, laying out the vision and then we organize and connect people uh, to help build the organizations that realize that vision at a uh, very high level. Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, Nate, one of the things you've talked about in the past, I, I, I found interesting. This is the, you know, from the line of stop buying from people who hate you. Of course, one of the classic examples was the Black Rifle Coffee, uh, which is uh, down the road here in Salt Lake. But right, there's a lot of people that make money off of conservatives by posing as, you know, friends, whatever. Um, so, on that front, how do you, I guess, as you're building this thing, how do you think through some of the, those type of mistakes and say, okay, we're not going to do that. And here's how we avoid it. How do you, how do you go about thinking about that? So it, it's a, it's a tough question. I spend a lot of time on because ultimately, ultimately, if we're not actually building a productive alternative, then, uh, then things do tend to descend into either a grift or I don't even want to be overly judgmental of a lot of them. Sometimes they're they're fine, but it's nothing special. It's not going to actually move the needle. Yeah. Part of it is my nature. I, I think I'm I'm an extremely restless person in some ways. I I can't not be working on something that I does I don't believe can actually change the direction of things. I uh, I would just it would not satisfy me and I would keep iterating until I think we're on a path that can. So I uh, spent a lot of time thinking about that. Uh, one level I think is we've, we've steered clear of consumer products. Again, I think it's great to have consumer products companies. We need them. We need companies that are more aligned. Uh, but ultimately uh, in many ways, one of the big problems is people buy too much. We're too consumerist of a society. So the best advice we can often give people uh, again is not, always buy from aligned companies, but just don't buy as much. Uh, if you don't buy as much, you're, you're freer from a, uh, a system that largely uh, forces you into forces you to work for companies that hate you so that you can, uh, so that you can kind of keep paying the, uh, the uh, lifestyle costs uh, 
of a lot of provided by a lot of a lot of organizations that hate you. So that's that's part of it. Uh, I think another one is what are the core institutions that really are needed if we are going to uh, if we are going to change the direction of things? How do we build the institutions that that form the apex of that status hierarchy? As a way of thinking about it, so a lot of times people operate within particular hierarchies. I think a lot of people would say Black Rifle suspect that Black Rifle Coffee's compromises came because they uh, fundamentally didn't want to be ostracized from a uh, a world. Their founder went to Harvard Business School. They didn't want to be ostracized from a world in which uh, there were a set of set of values that uh, they didn't want to stray too far from. Uh, ultimately, to win, we need to be uh, we need to be fully independent of that uh, really legacy and, and very very hostile status hierarchy. And there's sort of there, there's institutions that are key to allowing us to chart our own vision and to really pursue something different and my focus is on those. That's why, that's why we've started with things like media that helps set that vision and uh, high level connections for professionals uh, that, that again, allow people to connect, allow builders to connect with others who share their values. If, if we're helping connect builders who have a really distinct vision or are drawn to a distinct vision, then uh, they'll, they'll build. Part of what we do is we, we can help elevate the ideas that we actually do believe we'll move the needle. Uh, that's that's part of that editorial uh, editorial uh, discretion there. And then uh, talented people are often drawn to those, and we can bring those people together. So it's it's ultimately about just a focus on what will will matter rather than. And I think the money will follow. I mean, certainly we need to build a profitable business. Uh, ultimately, I believe the biggest profit comes from something that's truly disruptive and truly successful. Uh, the shorter term, easier profit often comes from uh, what you would describe as sort of profiting off people uh, through a high margin good uh, without necessarily changing things. But that's never going to be a $10 billion, $100 billion company unless it, unless it really takes right. a turn in a direction that's innovative. Whereas I think that the biggest successes will come from something that uh, they kind of takes on the king and wins in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's great. Uh, it's interesting. Something you mentioned, uh, core institutions. So a lot of times um, we, we, you've kind of hear this rhetoric of like, you know, we, we want to either be revolutionaries, tear down the institutions. Some people think we don't need them at all. I think you're right about core institutions, but my question is, how do you go about thinking about that? Like what constitutes core? And then is it taking over old institutions? Is it building new ones? Is it a combination? So I'll walk you through, I, I uh, sort of a revelation I actually had. I uh, hope it's a revelation. Hope it's accurate. But uh, over the last few weeks, I was thinking about this, and I was realizing what do we really need to prioritize in the consumer space? Uh, should I feel guilty if I buy something from Amazon, for instance? The way I, I came down on it as I thought about it is there's aspects of what Amazon does. They, they don't. They have a, a great logistics system. They deliver things. Uh, they have a sort of classic retail business. They sell you things. Uh, they don't earn, earn. They probably don't earn great margins on those, and they're very, very hard businesses to necessarily replicate. Uh, and yet, they're they're businesses that don't necessarily have a ton of uh, ton of impact on on your way of life. Uh, if you're trying to preserve a distinct way of life, does it matter if you buy something that's delivered with Amazon's logistics? Probably not. Uh, if you're trying to preserve a distinct way of life, does it matter if you uh, when you want to buy something? 
you go to the search bar and you type it in and it's Amazon search bar and you're depending on Amazon's ratings. Absolutely, that matters a huge amount. If you're giving them the sort of curation ability to steer you in a particular direction, that's a hugely impactful institution for shaping a community's way of life. If they're actually the ones taking that retailer margin and, and, and delivering you the book, doesn't really matter much. So we really need to, in that case, for instance, maybe they're necessarily paired. In that case, we have to go, go for both of them. But I think the first part you'd want to go for is you'd want to go for the curation. You'd want to go for the tools that help people decide what to buy. And if they ultimately end up getting them delivered by Amazon, uh, that, that, that's a secondary, secondary priority. And I think there's a lot of situations where that's the case. What typically things that are both, typically things that are very high margin are often very high margin mean they're actually a better business precisely because uh, part of the sale is is the trust or judgment that goes into that. And those are uh, those are are great things for us to get into. They'll both be there's an opportunity for profit there uh, and there's actually a uh, a meaningful uh, we're essentially selling our trust and judgment. And ultimately, the trust and judgment is what we have the least confidence in of many of these large organizations. Obviously, that's very true when it comes to anything with a sort of educational component. So, uh, or also media. Media is a huge one. You you want your own media. If you don't have your own media, you're really being fed curated information by uh, by very hostile uh, people. That applies certainly to kids' content. Uh, kids' media extremely values laden. Uh, it applies to education and universities. That's not the the business we're in, but it's a, an incredibly important component of. Uh, of any alternative. Uh, and I think it applies to finance a lot. Again, a, a space where trust and judgment play a huge role. But you, you see this with ESG on the other side where uh, they are using their, uh, their trust to essentially steer money to, uh, to uh, allocate capital in ways that reflect a set of values and a vision that is very different from ours and that, that imposes their, their views. And ultimately, why would you entrust your money to people who do that? That side, uh, it's going to be advancing causes you don't believe in. It's going to be invested in ways you don't believe are going to earn good returns. Uh, and uh, so we need alternatives from the standpoint of investors and we need alternatives from the standpoint of getting, uh, getting things financed, getting new businesses financed. So uh, finance, I think, is hugely important. Uh, again, a trust mediating business. Curation, hugely important. Again, it, it goes into the business of, of trust and judgment and uh, content and education. Yeah, I think that that's a great point. Uh, one of the things that interests me is, and I know you've talked about this before, but just this idea that the left has been really good at certain things. Media, controlling media, obviously one of them. A lot of people would look at that and they say, okay, that's like an unwinnable game. But in your mind, obviously, creating media platforms, institutions, how do we go about that? And how do you think about media as pertaining to all the rest of this? So I think it's I actually think it's an incredibly winnable game. Uh, media is in many ways one of the easiest spaces because uh, partially because people recognize it so values laden. So maybe winning the mass middle people who don't care as much about politics that's a, that's a harder that's a harder problem and and part of that is that uh, fundamentally I think those people are not necessarily you know if they're looking for entertainment if they're looking for uh, if they're looking for something that sort of fits within the the mainstream so to speak they're not 
they're not looking for the truth. It's unlikely that they're going to be led to find the truth if they're not looking for the truth. Uh, but I think at the same time, there's a very, very large share of people who are actively looking for something different. And the beauty of media is it doesn't take a lot to provide it to them. Uh, I think your podcast here is a great example. It's not a high overhead business. It's not a, uh, it's not a business where you need massive, uh, the internet has radically changed uh, the economics here. You don't need massive legacy distribution deals. You can put up a podcast and you can, uh, uh, you can put it out there and hundreds of thousands of people can get to it. And at that point, you are media and you're media that maybe more people are listening to that than uh, are watching some uh, cable, cable news shows uh, in some cases. So it's, uh, it, it, it has extremely low barriers to entry in many ways. Uh, and it has, uh, it, it has very high leverage. Uh, I would say, I, the, I guess I have one key thesis on media uh, uh, of what matters is there's really two types of media. In many ways, there's sort of distribution and attention. And I think a lot of media optimizes for numbers and clicks. Uh, and that's one that's going to be dominated in many ways by those who provide entertainment. It'll be dominated by the social media platforms, TikTok, Facebook. Ultimately, if they're just trying to grab a little bit of your attention, they are very good at that. And that's, uh, that's a very hard game to play. Uh, but there's another side of media, which is not not media centered on attention, but it's media uh, that focuses on the credibility of the editorial line in a sense. Uh, and that's very different. Yeah. I think that in, in many ways, the, the former is a race to the bottom. Uh, clicks, if, if all you offer is, is attention and page views, that's a ruthlessly competitive space that is a continual race to the bottom. Yes, you can rapidly rise, but you can also rapidly fall. Whereas if, if people listen to you, if people read you, if people trust you on the basis of, uh, on the basis of trust in uh, either the institution or the host, then that has the ability to move them. Uh, even a much smaller audience uh, could have way more impact with them. Uh, and so you're, you're really, at that point, you're butting up against... Uh, very powerful and influential institutions. I mean, that's that's why something like the New York Times has its power. Is yes, it has a lot of distribution, but even disproportionate to its distribution, it has uh, trust and influence in a lot of the circles that matter. Uh, I think that that's that is the scarce resource. People and increasingly, it's lost that trust uh, on the other side. There's an entire large share of America who recognizes that that editorial line is yes. Some of the reporting might still be accurate. But ultimately, it's it's not a particularly trusted guide to the world, and they're looking for alternatives. I think those who can provide alternatives uh, not only not only have the ability to quickly gain market share, but have the ability to actually surpass some of these legacy institutions in uh, in trust and stewarding that trust. I think will be very profitable with new new business models, uh, and it also will serve as can serve as a foundation for actually pointing people, organizing people around other institutions, which is really what we're trying to do with return. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious with uh, say like the media project you guys have taken on, like how do you view, I don't know, I guess let's say like American reformer. How do you view that as what role is it playing and kind of what space is it trying to carve out in, in shaping that ideal for media? So fundamentally, I would say that that epitomizes media as an amplifier of vision. And, and that that fits mm. with all of these is is uh, there's the trust side of media. And then there's also the 
media as an amplifier of certain types of ideas. So uh, again, in contrast with, let's say, media as entertainment, uh, American Reformer and, and Return fits this category too. Uh, fundamentally is about uh, taking an alternative vision, uh, working out and really serving as a forum to discuss an alternative vision for where we should, for what we should aspire to. And through effective execution in media, amplifying that to reach a number of people uh, to gain leverage. And mm. in some ways, the, the example I give here is actually uh, Elon Musk. Uh, I, I argue that the two greatest media entrepreneurs of the last decade were Donald Trump and Elon Musk. Uh, neither of them was in the media business per se, but both of them used media to mobilize a lot of people around what was fundamentally a disruptive idea. Uh, and media, just like if you have a financial trade, let's say you have a theory, an idea that could be expressed as a financial trade, you gain leverage by raising a billion dollars in a hedge fund and then making a big trade. Uh, I think in a lot of these spaces, if you have an idea that's a disruptive idea, uh, you gain leverage by uh, using media to broadcast that idea to a lot of people and essentially uh, rallying a lot of people to follow you on that. And uh, that's the goal with with American Reformer is is we have a uh, th there's a void in the market in a sense. There's a lot of institutions in uh, in the evangelical world that buy into a uh, really a stale paradigm. It's one that's it's one that's not very satisfying to anyone. It's one that sort of is almost expressly subordinated itself to the mainstream status hierarchy and uh, results in all sorts of compromise and or results in uh, a sort of uh, intentional impotence. Uh, and uh, people want an alternative. A lot of people are drawn to an alternative and American Reformer uh, set out to provide that and set out to be a hub of where we could discuss what that alternative should be and, and draw on a rich heritage, uh, draw on the really the Protestant heritage that uh, shape the founding of America, uh, and then combine that with a stance toward, uh, in the case of American Reformer, it's, yes, it is a new institution and we're building a little bit, but really uh, also uh, fighting to retake and reshape institutions. I mean, the evangelical world, I, I, in the evangelical world, those institutions should be ours. They should be on their side, on our side. In many cases, their, their constituents remain uh, much more aligned with our vision than the alternative vision. Uh, and part of what we can do is organize people to actually retake them, whether it's Christian colleges, uh, Christian denominations, uh, other institutions. So American Reformer is, is set to both provide that alternative vision so these institutions know what they're aiming for and uh, actually help bring people together to retake and reshape uh, institutions that realize that. As a global study from 2021 pointed out, people who lift weights just 30 to 60 minutes per week increase their lifespan by up to 20%. You heard that right, 20%. Other studies have shown that strength is one of the factors tied most directly to increasing your longevity. Interestingly enough, this holds true at any age. In other words, whether you're 18 or 87, you greatly increase your chance of living longer simply by doing some form of strength training. Speaking of which, I've been lifting weights through Barbell Logic online coaching for about nine weeks now. I'm working with my trainer, Matt Reynolds, three workouts per week, and I've increased my deadlift and squat by over 100 pounds. And that's just nine weeks. My bench press has increased by almost 50 pounds. I've never had weightlifting coaching, but with custom tailored workouts and constant feedback from Matt after my workouts, 
I've been able to improve form, increase weight, and grow much stronger in a very short period of time. My deadlift is now up over 285 pounds, my squat is over 275 pounds, and my bench press is over 220 pounds. Are you ready to improve your strength, get in better shape, and increase the number of productive years, God willing, that you have on earth? Well, sign up today for Barbell Logic's online coaching, and your first month is always free. They'll pair you with the right coach to meet your training needs. So visit barbelllogic.com slash hardmen to get paired with a coach today and start your weightlifting program. You can also check the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's fascinating. The other thing I was going to ask you about that is uh, you mentioned the evangelical world. Um, you know, I'm thinking of things like Christianity Today or the Gospel Coalition. They didn't necessarily always used to be what they are now, but I'm curious why you think that ground was seeded. What what was going on in those institutions? And, and partly, I'm thinking like, how do you learn from this so it didn't doesn't happen again? But but what happened there? So I I would actually argue that both of those institutions from the very beginning I think had stances that that contributed to where they are today. And and the Gospel Coalition is interesting. Uh, Aaron Wren would talks about the the neutral world concept, the positive neutral negative yeah. world framework, and I. Uh, the Gospel Coalition, I think, is a quintessentially neutral world institution. It uh, it never had a particularly assertive view. It it, it had a view that was focused on uh, it, it was it, its tone was set by people like Keller, who would engage the world, and uh, they weren't trying to uh, they weren't trying to, to fight with it. And and I think generally uh, lacked a steered clear of uh, of issues that would result in, in heavy conflict, uh, with the, uh, with the mainstream world. So I think that sets the stage for an institution that in many ways, I I don't think they've, I I don't know that they've theologically compromised too much in, in horrible ways. I mean, there's, there's certainly some, uh, but it's more a compromise in terms of, uh, it it just, it, it fails to, uh, fails to assert a positive alternative. It often leads Christians to a sort of third way that, uh, that avoids, uh, avoids challenging uh, the other side. In many ways, Christianity Today, and I, I, I don't know as much about the exactly about the history of that I know that this was very true for Fuller Seminary, which I think came out of uh, the same era and and a, a lot of the similar uh, groups of people. Yeah, from the very beginning, I think Fuller was very concerned with uh, secular respectability. There was a little bit of what I. John Arrett in one of our articles talked about the evangelical embarrassment uh, reflex. And, and there was this embarrassment about uh, about our intellectual position and a desire to uh, have an intellectually respectable institution. And ultimately, if if they wanted to be judged intellectually respectable by institutions, uh, by secular institutions, that, that sets you up to... Uh, slide in that direction from the very beginning. Uh, my stance toward secular institutions is uh, Harvard doesn't know what an education even means anymore. So why should I care what they think? <laughs> why, why should I at all care what yeah. their scholars, who are their scholars to judge uh, people we recognize as, uh, as insightful uh, and uh, pursuing the truth? Uh, we, we need to essentially... Uh, we, we need to judge. We should be judging the world in that sense. We need to uh, we need to be our own judges. We need to find wise people who still understand the truth and let them be the judges of what is uh, 
intellectually solid or respectable. And we need high standards. I mean, if we're not if we're not competing, uh, if we're not going uh, going for something that really is excellent, uh, it's no wonder people will continue to be embarrassed. Uh, but we shouldn't be embarrassed because Harvard doesn't approve of us. Uh, we should be embarrassed if we put out mediocre, uh, mediocre content, mediocre scholarship. So, uh, yeah, I, I think the problem with the Christianity Todays of the world is potentially from the beginning, there was a little bit of a, uh, a, a, a voluntary subservience to a secular status hierarchy. That leads to an in, yeah, invariable slide in the direction of uh, whatever their Overton window is. Yeah, Unless I think I'm that's a good way that. to put it. I think it. the key stance is all of our institutions are self-consciously independent. Uh, they're critiquing they're critiquing the regime uh, at the highest level uh, from the very start. And uh, what's what's sad is that in many cases, traditionally, it's not Christians who have been good at this. It's actually a lot of Silicon Valley people, a lot of people in the crypto world, for instance, uh, Bitcoin world particularly, I think have been much better at actually uh, coming at their critiques from the top. Uh, and, and recognizing that they don't need the approval of these other institutions, whereas Christians so often are uh, are still seeking some degree of uh, of legacy institutional uh, acceptance. Yeah, I think that's a great point. One of the other things you you mentioned, I want to ask you about, is the this concept of being a disruptor and why that can be a good thing. So, what do you have in mind with this? Um, why is it effective? strategy at this point in the game so this will this will go a little bit to that that con that point i made at the beginning which is about technology uh technology is it look if we have if we don't have a positive vision if we just are trying to preserve good things we're going to be technology is fundamentally an enemy it it, it is going to be chipping away at, at what we care about uh and especially disruptive technology the more disruptive the technology the more it probably disrupts uh good things that we care about and if it's disruptive technology wielded by people who hate us, then uh, whatever they build in this place is probably going to be less aligned with what we what we value. But uh, that's that, that, that's not our vision. Our vision is we have a strong, positive vision to aspire to. Uh, and in many ways, we are at a severe disadvantage. Uh, we're severely outmatched in many areas of society. Many, many legacy institutions, most legacy institutions are controlled by people hostile to us or people who are. Who, who are subservient to those hostile to us. Uh, we, we have structural impediments, and even in politics, one of the areas where we're arguably relatively strong, uh, massive structural impediments to change. Uh, so uh, if that's the case, then I would say uh, you should look at disruptive technology as one of the most powerful levers we have. I think new kinds of networks uh, New kinds of networks that achieve a very high value per member is how I look at this. So you think of the power of a Facebook uh, and there's Metcalf's law that talks about the, the value of a net network uh, compounding with the number of members. And yet the value of the interactions that Facebook and those social networks uh, facilitate are incredibly low. They're really fairly trivial values in many cases. Uh, even their market value per user, maybe $200 a, a, an active user, which is really just a trivial share of your life. That's market value. That's not even income. Uh, so it's it's not even that strong of a network in terms of what it enables. And yet it's tremendously powerful institution by many standards. If we are able to uh, leverage digital network technology to build networks that are facilitating much more valuable interactions, uh, 
as an example, and you're getting into spaces where we're brokering trust, which is what Silicon Valley has utterly failed to do is they don't understand trust and they don't understand human nature. And as a result, I think they've they've attempted to replace things that are fundamentally human with technology and they've they've failed, which is why they resort to things like a, just engagement and addiction metrics that are uh, are very uh, low level, but understandable by uh, by a sort of engineering focused company. Uh, if if we if we embrace technologies that allow us to scale more valuable human activities, uh, communal activities, then the power of that network could compound uh, incredibly quickly. Uh, and this is why I'm doing things like talent placement. If we help, uh, if we help match, uh, if we help match builders, uh, professionals, executives with each other, uh, those matches can be worth tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Imagine a network that's facilitating that type of interaction, that type of transaction is facilitating the allocation of of capital and other trust-based interactions. That network can compound very, very quickly and uh, very quickly, I believe, grow to disrupt uh, legacy institutions. Uh, a great example is uh, what can beat a uh, what can beat a Harvard degree if you're hiring, even if you still have a decently high view of a Harvard degree. Uh, most people will recognize. I mean, I'll, I'll ask you, what is something that's more valuable if you want to hire someone? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I think a lot of times it seems like it in the real world it plays out in a trust relationship, but maybe also just having the actual practical skills that somebody with a degree may not. <laughs> I'll go to the first one you say, and even if it's even if it's even if you're taking a risk on someone earlier in their career, trust based networks, right? A a a, a network, yeah. someone whose judgment you trust, who recommends a person, can easily you can easily value that recommendation above even the best degree. Uh, and the reason is that yeah. a degree is a it's a heuristic, it's useful, but it's still a it's kind of a a, a minimal threshold in many ways. Uh, and a good recommendation can get you above that. And uh, I think the point is these small human networks uh, can often produce something that is more valuable than uh, the most elite institutions. Uh, and I mean that even if you're just purely concerned with making money, you're purely concerned with uh, with something that even that those institutions s- supposedly specialize in. And if we can scale some of those interactions, then uh, let's say you're able to produce a network that can uh, help uh, aggregate that type of information and make matches uh, for the sort of careers that people would would otherwise go to elite schools for. Uh, that may provide an alternative path to get into those careers. It may provide an alternative path to staff your firms. And at that point, we're we're, we're on the verge of disrupting uh, which what what people really pay for. They don't they don't pay for a they don't go to Harvard for the education. Generally, they go there because of the network and the the degree and the, the jobs it'll get you. And if we're providing a viable alternative there, or even a superior alternative, then uh, suddenly people are no longer dependent on those elite institutions. So I think that technology can be tremendously disruptive, and it can be disruptive in ways that uh, take power away from hostile institutions uh, and give it to those who uh, know how to wield it. And uh, we should be we should be looking for anything that can change that balance of power when we're uh, in a position like we are. Yeah. I, I think it's a great point. Uh, I, I'm curious as well. You look at something like 2020, right? The world shifted. There was a lot of disruption happening at a number of levels. 
My question is, uh, what was kind of your read on 2020? We've had a little bit of time to see how some of it is shaking out. Um, yeah, just what's your overall read on it? What do you see happening? What's shifting? What's changing? So 2020 was really a, uh, it was an, it was a sort of accelerator in a sense. I think it was a, it was a, it brought clarity to a lot of things. It brought clarity to me. I sort of knew that these changes were taking place and I was drawn to them. Yeah. I started 2020 probably approaching it from more the temperament of an investor. Felt like we could bet on the right things. Uh, I, I felt a real call to action. That was that year really led me to move from uh, what was a more passive or investment approach to one that I felt like I needed to jump in and actually build some of these alternative institutions. So uh, I think it was a wake up call for a lot of people like that. It was also a wake up call just realizing it, it touches every aspect of our life, politics, uh, politics in a sense, uh, or, or the, the institutions that have become, uh, you know, I think they're, they're political in a very fundamental sense, but they become ideological in a hostile sense are, are touching your communities. They're touching uh, minute parts of how you live your life. Uh, they're clearly, right. they're clearly setting standards that are radically inconsistent as you see the riots and you see public health used to suppress church services and tolerate uh, and, and excuse yeah. uh, large, uh, large gatherings uh, th that were uh, promoting a regime approved position. So I think that that just woke a lot of people up. Uh, Fundamentally, I, I don't think I, I don't know if it changed as much as it as it sort of accelerated and revealed, but it made clear we need to we need to make things happen fast or we're going to risk uh, losing a lot. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Nate, I, I wonder, OK, you look at that, you see everything that happened. I think there's been winners and losers. Um, and, and, and I think new founding, right, it, it plays a big role in a lot of this and hopefully will more so. But when you look at like who won and who lost, right? Who, who really capitalized? What kind of examples do you think of? Is it Elon Musk? Is it a, I, I guess some people would say Trump, but it looks like, I mean, he, he seems like didn't maybe benefit in the long run. Just curious your, your take on the players and who benefited. So I, I don't think Trump benefited. Yeah, I, I don't think Trump benefited. I think he actually, uh, I think he really struggled in that uh, that environment, and and one of the things I actually attributed that to was a pervasive acceptance of the legacy status hierarchy. I mean, the the biggest critique I give is a, a regular defense by the administration of their COVID response would be, "We did everything Fauci recommended." Why? Why is Fauci the authority? Is Fa are, are Fauci's recommendations the authority? You've just you've just essentially abdicated to Fauci uh, when it comes to COVID response. Uh, even yeah. aside from the, the sort of legitimate, even if we accept Fauci as a legitimate public health authority, you still need to assert that uh, these decisions are fundamentally political decisions that touch many factors. Uh, Fauci, as a public health expert, uh, as a purported public health expert, provides uh, an opinion on how things will play out, which can be a data point in that. But there's other cost benefit analysis and that cost benefit analysis is ultimately not something that can be made by a technocratic expert. That is a fundamental political question that needs a political leader to uh, to weigh in on. And uh, I don't think that I don't think that the leadership, uh, really most of the leadership in the conservative movement understood that or got that. And I would say even a lot of the critics of Fauci, uh, even a lot of that, I mean, you saw a lot of the uh, the biggest vaccine opponents, they would still sort of 
trot out someone with a doctor before his name as the as the critic as the critic of the response. And uh, I think the losers, uh, the, the people who really I, I think really the entire legacy sort of regime status hierarchy uh, that that expert apparatus is actually what lost. It's not uh, it's not that a particular set of politicized ones have been discredited, but other ones are good. But the entire uh, the entire uh, system that that is built on those credentials and grants those credentials, I think, has been largely discredited. And in many ways, it's it's it, it is well informed amateurs who were uh, ahead of the curve on this, who 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 were more accurate. So uh, I don't think there have been many who have effectively capitalized on that shift yet. That's a lot of what we're trying to do is really recognize that uh, we need to rebuild credibility from the ground up. It's not just about rotating among sort of existing credentialed experts and move in ours and move out theirs. Uh, it's about recognizing that the entire system of authority is uh, it is collapsing and there's a there's an increasing void. I mean, we just see a drop in societal trust in many ways. I'd say there's been a massive drop in societal trust in the last few years. And uh, that is, uh, it can go a lot further. You, you look at much of the world, you look at third world countries and the sort of pervasive theme is there's no trust in institutions, there's no societal trust. Uh, there's no reason that we, uh, we can't keep falling in that direction to the point that you, uh, you follow a trajectory of a South Africa or something. And, uh, and I don't think we've seen great alternative pillars of trust and credibility yet. Uh, and yet I think that's a massive opportunity. So anyway, all, all that to say, I think there's a lot of losers. Uh, there's relative winners. I think uh, there's people who have gotten things done. Uh, DeSantis is obviously a relative, a relative winner. His star has risen, uh, not even necessarily because of uh, stepping into the void on, uh, on credibility, but because getting things done matters more and more when, uh, when you don't have a lot else to look to. So it's not even what he believes. I don't even really care what he believes that much, but he, he has wins that matter for us against people who are hostile to us. Uh, that's a rise. Elon Musk, I think, in many ways has executed. I mean, Elon Musk is someone who knows how to land a rocket on a, uh, land a rocket on a raft in the, uh, in the ocean. That's an incredible accomplishment. He's, he's accomplished huge amounts of manufacturing in a world where most people don't know how to do anything in the physical world anymore. That's a relative victory. Uh, that's a relative victory in a world where people care about practical things. So yes, I think we've seen the star rise of those who have scarce skills, and we've had the the star fall generally of the. Uh, in some ways, we've had sort of the, the the grip, the aggressiveness of their grip on power tighten of that uh, professional managerial class. Uh, but in many ways, the the credibility on which they uh, at least historically established their power has fallen. So they're going to have to either resort to more raw power or, uh, or they're going to also end up losing a lot of, uh, a lot of their power and influence. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, one of the things too, I think you see in people who tend to succeed in time periods like that, that are tumultuous, right? Seeing opportunity in some of the adversity. Uh, certainly I think you guys are seeing opportunity with new founding, uh, one of the things that it says on your website is build the America you want to live in. You've got a wait list there. So for people who are asking like, okay, what does this have to do with me? How how can I get involved in this? Uh, I guess, first of all, just what kind of people are you looking for? It seems like it would include investors. Uh, who else? Why would this apply to them? 
So fundamentally, I think where our, as I said, a line is a line is very broad, and I think anyone can subscribe and uh, you go to align.newfounding.com and you can uh, you can join that there. But really, at the core of the waitlist, that's for that's for people who want to build the America they want. It's for people who want to, in some way, contribute. That could be uh, it could be you're you're looking for a job and you want to join and you want to actually, uh, especially jobs in that sort of engineer professional uh, executive founder category. Uh, you want to invest. Uh, we are uh, we're building out an investor program. We're building out a pro. If you want to raise money, we're building out a uh, a program where you can uh, submit pitches and uh, we can show those to investors. It's it's really about connecting. You could say it's about connecting those builders, connecting the people who will be creating these institutions. So I uh, certainly I uh, I encourage anyone uh, who is interested to. Uh, put their name in there for uh, for the job uh, for the talent program. Uh, if you are open to moving to another role, we have some pretty exciting roles out there. Uh, if you're an employer, I think it's even more important in many ways. You uh, a you really need to hire people who share your values, or you increasingly create risks for yourself. Uh, woke people once they get inside your organization are a terrible cultural risk. Uh, there's also just going to be a lot of unnecessary costs. Uh, but even beyond that, uh, there's a, a huge, huge supply of incredibly talented people who are looking to make a move here. They would, they're, they're the sort who would not otherwise be on the job market, and they'd be willing to move to the sort of company that they would not normally go to uh, because of a values alignment. That's that's a huge asset if you're if you're building a business and you can get. I mean, ultimately, if you if you post a job, you know you're going to see hundreds of resumes in many cases, and most of those resumes are sort of spam resumes from uh, probably people who are on the job market pretty regularly because they're just not that good. Uh, that's the the pool you're fishing in has a few quality people and has a lot of people who are probably uh, not going to be very good hires. Uh, if you I act if you intentionally go out and look for these values aligned people who are looking, they're looking for an opportunity to essentially help build the America they want to join an organization that is actually building the America they want, where their day to day life is advancing that uh, you get access to a very different pool of people, pool of people who are very motivated, in many cases, very high caliber. And uh, they're not moving except for an opportunity like that. So I, I see that as very. So I'd say for employers in particular, this is actually a, a huge opportunity, whether or not your mission is directly tied into uh, if your mission is directly tied into this sort of movement. Uh, that's particularly true. Uh, but even if your mission is just. Uh, uh, if it feels if it's just more general business, uh, but but you clearly have a distinct culture, that's that's an opportunity. Uh, as an investor, I think there's huge investment opportunity here. There's huge investment return. There's also huge impact. So for many people, they're they're both giving away money and they're investing. I think you can think of these as impact investments where you have uh, huge tailwinds that actually create a real opportunity for outsized returns. Uh, and then I think there's uh, there's people with ideas. There's people who can contribute. There's writers. Uh, there's writers who can uh, explore ideas. Uh, we are we are looking for those. Uh, we're building out a shared office. We're working on shared office space uh, where there's a real office community. Uh, I think we work identified a real demand for people, uh, their approach and their their sort of tone, I think we're not uh, necessarily the right ones. But it, especially in a world of remote work, uh, especially if you have dissident viewpoints, 
a lot of people really, really want to go to work and be around a community of people who share their viewpoints. And uh, we are working on building that out. So it's the kind of thing where you could express an interest in that. Uh, you could potentially uh, play a role in launching one in your, in your town or your area. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be partnering on that if you're building a business. So there's sort of anyone who's in that category uh, where they really want to reorient their, their professional life, their business life in this direction is core for what we're looking for. Or maybe just have that on the horizon for five years from now and they'll be participating in discussions. They'll join a forum. Uh, they'll, uh, th they'll meet other people who have uh, expertise relevant to, to exploring and thinking through an idea, uh, thinking through what could be built in a particular space. Yeah, absolutely. So is that the best thing for people to do then if they're interested in any of that is just to join the waitlist? Yes. So the, we, we put that waitlist there on purpose. It's, it's, there's enough going on. This is what we realize is we had a lot of we have a lot of projects. We have a lot of products. It gets sort of overwhelming if we just show them all, list them all. Uh, the whole point of that waitlist yeah. is specifically so that you can tell us about yourself. You can tell us where you believe you can contribute or what you'd be interested in. And we can then proactively connect you with with opportunities, uh, whether they're things we're doing directly or things that are are within our ecosystem that could be of interest to you. And it's a, it's a pretty simple form. It's less than should be less than five minutes to fill it out. And uh, that will be your uh, entree into this world. Awesome. Awesome. Nate, well, I appreciate it. Uh, one of the other things I want to do is just point people to at least your Twitter. Um, to, you, they can follow you on Twitter. Um, so we'll include links for your handle in the show notes. Uh, what are some other places that people might follow along on social media just to keep track of what you guys are up to? So, so my Twitter is certainly where I focus my, uh, my output. And it, it's a space that I recognized as conducive to reaching the sort of people where we're focused on uh, for a while. I was, I was more pessimistic on the, the future of it for a while. And since Elon bought it, I've, uh, I've uh, gone long a little bit more. But I, uh, that's one new founding where we're really working to ramp up our new founding level communications. We have an email newsletter uh, or we have an email update, okay. uh, which we've used sort of inconsistently, which will very soon be uh, be a regular, regular update of what's happening in the new founding ecosystem. Uh, you can go to our website and sign up for that. Uh, and then uh, I think finally return uh, the media publication if you if you are into that space, that's going to be uh, increasingly moving in the direction of showcasing ideas. Uh, our, our website will also showcase a lot of these ideas and projects. So uh, you can see all of those. If you go to the wait list, you'll certainly get on any email list uh, relevant to this and, and you'll hear about everything that's relevant at that point. Awesome. Awesome, Nate. Well, I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And of course, we'll, uh, we'll have links in the notes for people to check that stuff out. So thank you. All right. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate this. Well, thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.